If you don't have one, there's little black Bibles there. It's going to be, again, it's going to be particularly helpful maybe this week. It's a reasonable chunk of scripture. Um, it's going to be helpful for you to have that open in front of you. Um, let me just pray for us as we come to see what God would have us believe and obey. Father, we thank you that you speak, that you speak to us by your spirit through your word. We just pray in this moment that you would humble our hearts, that you would help us to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and the gospel and the joyfulness that comes from obeying your word. We pray for help to do that, to both hear and to respond in obedience. We so desperately need that help and we thank you that we have it in the spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <coughs> um, so um, one of the things that we got uh, Joseph this Christmas, or that someone bought for him, sorry, was um, a watch. Uh, and he has uh, loved putting on his watch. Um, it's been fun to try and help him figure out how to put it on. Um, trying to tell the time. Obviously, he's a bit young to be telling the time, but he tries. He, he says things. And uh, teaching him to put it on his left hand. I don't know what, what hand you put your watch on. I put mine on my left hand. I think most people do. But there's only, uh, I, I, thinking this week as I was preparing the sermon, there's, there's only two things that I have on my left hand. Uh, it's my watch and my ring. There's only two things. You maybe have more. But on my hand, there's only two things. There's my watch and my ring. And the question really the passage poses to us this morning is which one should direct our lives more? Which one should direct and define our lives more? Paul, essentially here in this passage, is saying this, look at your watch more than you look at your ring finger. Look at your watch more than you look at your ring finger. Last week, we saw the kind of main principle in this chapter in 1 Corinthians is to be concerned and content to obey God's commands in whatever marital status you're currently called. So whatever status you have maritally, everyone's main concern is to keep God's commandments. And in these verses, he's kind of bringing further clarity and further urgency to our marital status by helping us to view our marital status through the lens of eternity. Look at your watch more than you look at your ring finger. So if you're married, widowed, divorced, engaged, or single, the question is, how should, you, how should eternity shape how we both view our marital status and how we live it out. The main thing that Paul's communicating to us this morning then is this, in a world that is passing away, we must keep marriage in perspective. In a world that is passing away, we must keep marriage in perspective. And just before we dive into the verses this week, um, just to kind of recap briefly what we went through last week, you can catch up with that sermon um, via the podcast or via online. Um, but really, these two sermons go together. They're in the same chapter. So just to briefly recap some of the key points we saw last week. Firstly, God has given sex as a good gift to be mutually and regularly enjoyed within the context of lifelong heterosexual monogamous marriage. And his design for that is good. Any sexual relations outside of that is both sinful and ultimately harmful. We saw that marriage is a good safeguard against sexual immorality. If we struggle with sexual self-control, then marriage is a good option. We also saw that remaining unmarried is equally good and to be considered alongside marriage as a gift. That's what Paul calls it. If you're married, we saw that we are to stay married. And if you divorce, 
Your options are reconciliation with your former spouse or remaining unmarried. We also saw the two exceptions that the Bible has with regards to divorce as well. If you're a Christian married to a non-Christian, again, the exhortation is to stay married for the sake of your spouse and any children you have. But if your unbelieving spouse leaves the marriage, you're free to remarry. That's one of the exceptions. And then the big kind of overriding principle is this. We have freedom to change our marital status within God's bounds. We have freedom to change our marital status and our circumstances, yet our main identity is that we belong to Jesus. We were bought with a, pr a price, and our main priority should be keeping his commands. So that's kind of a brief overview of last week. What's the first big thing we see here then in verses 25 to 40? Is this remaining single has advantages, verses 25 to 28. Remaining single has advantages. Paul here is uh, addressing the betrothed, which um, if you want to think about it as those who are engaged, yet engagement in the biblical context would have been much more binding, much more uh, permanent thing than engagement we might practice today, uh, to the extent that almost divorce would have had to have been enacted for the engagement to end. And the question the Corinthians have here is, Okay, so he's kind of addressed married people. He's begun to address single people. And the engaged people are like, hey, we're kind of in between. What should we do? He's answering their question. What should they do in view of the present distress? Verse 26. Hey, Paul, what about us? You've addressed married people. You've addressed single people. What about engaged people? What should we do in light of the present distress? Should we get married? Given what you've already said. Now, the present distress here in verse 26 there's kind of no major consensus on what it might be. It could be a specific acute issue going on at the time that Paul writes a letter, maybe something like a famine. Or more likely, it is descriptive of the general distress of the last days between Jesus' first and second com coming. If we look at verses 29 to 31, they seem to speak more generally of the time between Jesus' first and second coming. But whatever way we see the present distress we take the whole of this chapter into account, and we take the whole of the New Testament into account, the whole of God's Word into account, Paul is not saying that engaged people should remain indefinitely unmarried, okay? Don't make that mistake. Paul's not saying that engaged people here should remain indefinitely unmarried. He's not saying either here in this passage that singleness is a higher, holier way of life compared to marriage. It would be easy to just read this passage at a glance and think that he says that. He's not saying singleness is a higher, holier way of life compared to marriage. Some throughout church history have said that, and they're wrong. What he is doing, though, is highlighting that given the fact that life is a vapor, that time is short, that Jesus is coming soon, remaining unmarried is to be considered a valid, and even sometimes, in particular circumstances, a preferable option, dependent on how he calls us. And once again, if you look down at verse 26, he's again emphasizing that overriding principle, stay as you are, okay? Hey, Paul, what should we do? We're engaged. Keep calm, carry on. Stay as you are. It's not that you can't change your circumstances. In fact, sometimes it would be good for you to get married. But worry about keeping God's commands more than walking down the aisle. Worry more about keeping God's commands than about walking down the aisle. And he applies that principle in verses 27 to 28. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. 
But if you do marry, you have not sinned. Okay, there's nothing wrong with getting married. And if a betrothed man marries, if a, if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. So stay as you are. But if you do get married, which you have the freedom to do, and if you, we saw last week, in fact, if you lack sexual self-control, you should get married. If you do that, you've not done anything wrong. You've not sinned, as some in Corinth might say you have. Some in Corinth were saying, engaged folk, if you get married right now, it's a sin. It's not a sin. Marriage is a good thing. Yet, at the end of verse 28, Paul says, those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. He's saying, heads up, marriage is not plain sailing. The grass isn't always greener. If you choose to get married, it's great. Marriage is a good thing. But get ready for extra responsibilities and commitments that it will demand of you. Loving and caring for your spouse, raising children if the Lord grants you that. Get ready for those things. So the general principle, staying unmarried has its advantages. How do we apply all of this? How do we apply this a bit further in in our lives? First of all, to say that Paul here is elevating singleness. That's why he's already done verses 78 from last week. Paul here is elevating singleness. He's not demeaning marriage. When we take the whole of the Bible into consideration, and as we'll look at marriage in a few weeks in Ephesians 5, Paul has a very high view of marriage. But he's also elevating singleness in this chapter. In a culture back then where singleness is considered strange, just like it can often be considered within our culture and within the church, Paul here is elevating singleness. One thing that will help us to elevate singleness and view it as an equally good way of life is seeing how singleness and marriage develop throughout redemptive history. In Genesis, marriage is foundational and fundamental to God's plan. Okay, It served and it still serves to fulfill the command to be fruitful and multiply. It serves as a means of companionship. And it was essential as the means by which God's promised offspring would come. That's why marriage was so much more essential or so much more normal in the Old Testament. There needed to be physical offspring through which the offspring would come, Jesus. But now that Jesus has come, we see that while marriage will still serve as the creational norm, it is a temporal and earthly institution and arrangement which will one day have served its purpose and end. Uh, You'll see a diagram up on the screen, uh, which is from a a guy called Andres Kostenberger. He kind of charts the the way that marriage and singleness develop throughout the story of the Bible and how they will. Singleness begins as non-existent. Adam and Eve get married in the garden. That's the norm. Then we move to the Old Testament, singleness is uncommon and generally undesirable. It's almost viewed as a bad thing. Again, marriage continues to be the norm. Then we move into the New Testament. And we see with the teaching of Paul and of Jesus and all those things taken into consideration that singleness actually can be advantageous for kingdom ministry. Yet marriage will still continue to be the norm. And then we get to the final state where singleness will be universal. There will be no marriage in heaven. Matthew 22 tells us that. We will be as the angels. So we need to understand the role that marriage and singleness play in God's plan and and how they are both now good gifts that play their part in that plan. 
Sam Albury, a Christian author and writer, kind of, I, I find, helpfully summarizes it like this. They both play their part. He says, marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. Singleness now shows us its sufficiency. Marriage shows us the shape of the gospel. Singleness shows us its sufficiency. Both play their part in the plan of God. A number of things we can add to this that show how singleness and marriage both fit into God's plan. Firstly, the significance and the radical nature of the church as family. I walked a number of people through Harvest Essentials last week, and I think it's helpful to kind of use some of the images that the Bible uses of the church, two of those being family and bride. The church is God's family, and the church is Jesus' bride. The church is family, which means we need to fully grasp and live out the reality of church as family. It's not just a nice thing to say. It's not a cliche thing to say. Jesus' radical teaching on the church shows us that. He elevates the spiritual family above the biological family. We need to recognize that the, the multiplication of God's people's God's family is no longer via physical reproduction, but through spiritual regeneration and through discipleship multiplication. That's how this this family grows. That's how God's eternal family grows. So if you don't have children or you're not married, you get to be part of, of and grow a family. Everyone is part of and gets to grow a family. You have, as Isaiah 54 teaches us, If you've no children and you're not married, you have more children than you can ever imagine and a spouse who will eternally love you and be faithful to you. That's what Isaiah 54 teaches us. Those things are fulfilled in the church and in God being our ultimate husband. That's what Isaiah 54 teaches us. So we need to grasp the church as family and we need to grasp the church as Jesus' bride. If you're a Christian, you are effectively married to Christ. That's the metaphor, one of the key metaphors the Bible uses you get to, all of us get to experience loving union with Jesus. Both now and one day our bridegroom will return for us and we will have our wedding day. We will sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those things are true of all of us. Church is family, church is bride. We need to grasp that marriage is not the only source of intimacy and companionship in this life. Church's family tells us that, and also biblical friendships tell us that. Look at the life of Jesus and of Paul. Look at their friendships. Look at Jesus' life. He had friends. Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, remember? Read Paul's letters. See the affection and the love that he has for many people. Jesus and Paul were not lonely people. We need to also grasp here and understand that one of the key things that comes out of this passage is that sex and marriage are not essential to living a full and happy human life. Again, Jesus is the example. He's the most true and most fully fully human person who ever lived, and he had experienced neither of those things. Let me speak specifically to those who are single here in uh, the church. I also want to acknowledge don't want to be uh, brush over the fact, and we want to acknowledge the fact that many single people's lived experience of their singleness is one of struggle. Hey, that can be a very real thing. 
Many single people have a strong desire for companionship and marriage. Question might be, what should I do if that's not happening for me right now? A number of things. Invest yourself in a church family. Build deep biblical friendships. Work at that. Pursue her personal holiness. That's the primary thing that all of us are called to. When it comes to your season of singleness, however short or however long that may end up being, view it as a gift, not an affliction. That's what Paul got us to think about last week. For some, singleness may become a settled choice or over time a contented state, a status they can embrace and receive with contentment and self-control as a gift. And it is a gift. It's a, there's, there's a special measure of grace for those who can receive it. Paul talks about that, and Jesus talks about that in Matthew 19. For some people, it's going to be too hard to hear that they need to stay single, but some can receive it. I think that's what Paul means when it's a gift. That's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 19. But for some, it may not be so easy to embrace. Therefore, exercise your freedom to prayerfully pursue marriage. Marriage is a good thing. Okay, don't hear me wrong this morning. Marriage and singleness are both great things. We should encourage marriage. You are free to pursue marriage. Yeah, Lee, but it's not happening. Paul says, yeah, if you lack self-control or you desire marriage, go and get married. It's not that easy. Where am I, who am I going to get married to? Know this, the Lord sees you and knows you and his hand is upon you and he doesn't withhold any eternally good thing from any of us. He doesn't withhold anything eternally good from us. Trust him and embrace how he may be unique, uniquely using this season in your life to refine your faith and relationship with him, which for all of us is our most important relationship. Doesn't mean you won't wrestle necessarily. Doesn't mean it won't be hard. But nobody here can tell you and say definitively that God's got someone out there for you. You don't know that. I don't know that. We have to trust God with those things. Yes, I know that's hard. Let's do it together. Enjoy the friendship and the embrace and the help and the comfort of a church family and of God himself. Let me encourage you, if you're single, to not idolize or obsess over earthly marriage. As we thought about, the grass isn't always greener. In fact, the grass is definitely not always green, greener because in verse 27, Paul, marriage is difficult enough that Paul is having to encourage married, married people not to bail on their marriage. Do you see that in verse 27? Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? Don't bail. That doesn't make marriage sound easy and a walk in the park every day of the year, does it? Focus on obedience to God's command, which bring great delight. Let me encourage you also to grow in your contentment in Christ. Again, Sam Albury says this helpfully. He says the key to contentment as a single person isn't being content in your singleness, okay? The key isn't to be content in your state of singleness. It's to become content in Christ as a single person. And that call to contentment is something which we're all called to. Let me speak to us as a church for a moment. So addressing all of us now particularly, 
We must work hard to embrace and enfold all marital statuses into the life of our church, into our families, and into our homes. We all need to do that. We need to be conscious of how singleness will uniquely impact each single person. We need to include them in our lives and our homes, particularly if you're married and with kids. Include them in your holidays. Think about them at Christmas. Consider how New Year could be a particularly painful time for them. And include them in your everyday daily routine. But let's not patronize. Let's not overpromise. And just know God's got someone out there for you. You don't know that. Let's not treat their season of singleness as a plague. Yet, we also need to hold marriage highly, but not too highly. It may be the norm, but it's not the only good, fulfilling, joyful option. And let me just take a moment to honestly ask and ask for you to, to come to me, to our elders in the, in the days to come, how can we as a church best serve you as a single person? How can we best serve you? How can we best care for you? We probably aren't getting that well. We might not be doing that right. I'm here to hear how we can best serve you. So why does Paul elevate singleness? Well, he goes on to give kind of two key reasons. Remain single has advantages, firstly, because this world is fading. Verse 29, if you look down, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And then verse 31, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul's doing what he's been doing throughout the whole book of 1 Corinthians, if you're familiar with it. He's addressing the issues at hand in light of the future. He's again, he's saying, look at your watch more than you look at your ring finger. So if you're unmarried, he's saying here, you are free to pursue marriage, but remember that marriage is passing away with this world. Don't pursue it or idolize it at the expense of eternity. Maintain perspective. If you do end up getting married, make sure your marriage majors on the eternal things rather than earthly things. What about those who are married? Verse 29, from now on let those who have wives live as though they had none. Okay, Paul is definitely not saying never talk to your wife or husband again, just pretend they don't exist. Of course he's not saying that. What he's getting at is that in light of eternity, in, in light of the fact that time is short, don't become so engrossed in your marriage that you neglect everything else. Don't live as if your earthly marriage is all there is. And in fact, we will serve our marriage and children best when we live in light of eternity. We love our wife, our spouse, our husband, our children best when we love Jesus more. That's how we will best serve those things. If you're married, remember your, your, your immediate family is part of the church family. Help your spouse and your children, if you have children, help them to see and experience the joy of church family as much, if not more, than that of biological family. Remember that your marriage is primarily a partnership for the service of God's kingdom. It's primarily a partnership for the service of God's kingdom. That's the same with Adam and Eve. Yes, it was for companionship, but Eve's called a helper. Helper in what? Why did Adam need a helper? Why did God primarily bring them together? 
to be fruitful and multiply, to fulfill God's mission and purpose for their lives. Therefore, married people should not become self-indulgent. It's not about building our kingdoms, our own little kingdoms, but building God's kingdom and using our resources and our home for more than ourselves. If you're married, prepare and encourage your spouse and your kid primarily in what is eternal rather than emphasizing what is earthly. That means keeping their education, their hobbies, holidays, and even their marriages in perspective. Those things are not unimportant. It's not that we shouldn't encourage them in those things. It's not that we shouldn't rejoice in those things. It's not that we shouldn't invest in those things, but don't do it at the expense of the things that are eternal. And he widens out the application to all of life in verses 29 to 31. Let those who are wise live as though they had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. Those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings. Main point here is don't neglect or devalue earthly things. Okay, don't neglect those things. Those are good things. Marriage, mourning. It's okay to mourn. It's a biblical thing to mourn. It's good to rejoice. It's okay to rejoice in the things of this world, the good things that God has given us, but just make sure that we live out our marriage with eternity in mind. Make sure that we mourn, but that we do it with hope. Rejoice in the things of this world, but do it recognizing the best is still yet to come. Live with a focus and an urgency that comes from keeping one eye on the clock. That's what Paul's saying here. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, let me just speak to you for a moment. Know that this world in its current form is passing away. It's passing away and Jesus will return. Don't allow the things of this world to dull your mind or dull your heart and leave you in a place where you're unprepared to meet Jesus when he comes back. There's still time to turn to him for forgiveness, for mercy, and for salvation. Your debt has been paid. All you need to do is go and receive that payment in faith. Second reason singleness can be advantageous, because singleness aids my focus. Paul's really kind of clear here, really straightforward. Marriage means your focus will be more divided. It's not necessarily a bad thing, it's just a reality. If you're single, your focus will be more undivided. Again, Paul isn't saying that for married people to please your spouse and focus on your children is a burdensome or unworthy use of your time. It isn't. It's a very worthy use of your time. You're called to it. You're commanded to it. The Bible commands it. It's good. It's just that in light of Jesus' second coming, there is a unique freedom that comes with being unmarried. Our earthly lives are more undivided. Okay, take the snapshot of a family leaving the house, okay? There's leaving the house when you're single. There's leaving the house when you're married, which is a little bit harder. Then there's leaving the house when you've got kids. That's a lot harder. It's the reality. It's not that those things, one thing is lesser or one thing is greater, but it's the reality. Your focus is more divided. And what is the thing we are to focus on here? What's the thing that Jesus or Paul is calling us to here? Are we to focus then more on ourselves if we're unmarried? No, on the Lord. End of verse 35, if you look down. Undivided devotion to the Lord. 
It's not a license to do whatever you want with your more free time or more undivided focus. It's devotion to the Lord and subsequently to others. Another writer and author, Christian author and writer, Matt Smethurst, says this, the world champions the single life because of all we can do for ourselves. The Bible champions single life because of all we can do for others. If you're unmarried, you have a unique freedom to serve the Lord and to serve others in a way that married people and married people with children don't have. So don't become selfish in your singleness. Say that with grace, but that can happen. Don't become selfish in your singleness. That unique freedom is to be used for the sake of the Lord and for others. The reality is that if someone in the church or one of your friends or family members needs help, there is a flexibility and a freedom that allows you to help them and spend time with them in a way that married couples and families just don't have. It's not that more is expected of you necessarily or that married couples and married people shouldn't do those things too. It's just that it's easier. If you're unmarried, there is a freedom from the anxieties of marriage here. But let me say also, as a unmarried person, be sensitive to the troubles and anxieties of married couples and families. It's not one-way traffic. Seek to encourage and serve married people and families. If you're unmarried, consider the biblical examples of those who were unmarried and follow their example for whatever season of life you're in. Think of Anna in Luke chapter 2, the prophetess. She experienced marriage for seven years, likely at a very young age. And then she was widowed until she was 84. Yet she enjoyed a long life of prayer, fasting, and worship. Her life was dedicated to the Lord. So consider the biblical examples. Paul himself, Jesus, others. Another example of singleness is that of Bestie and Corey Tenboom. Many of you will know who Corey Tenboom is. The example of singleness which aided undivided devotion to the Lord. Uh, they're well known for their courage and love for people during the Second World War under the uh, persecution of the Nazis and of how they lived out their faith in, in the nightmare conditions of a concentration camp. They both wrestled with love relationships and singleness. If you want to read more about that, come and speak to me. Corey Tenboom thought she was going to get married to a guy when she was younger, and it didn't, didn't happen. They wrestled with it, yet they were among those whom God graciously gifted with singleness for the sake of others, and didn't he use them in a powerful way? He used them for the sake of others and the spread of the gospel in the most difficult of circumstances. The author who kind of, uh, the, the book that I read that kind of references them and tells her story, the author says this about them, about Bestie and Corey Timboom. She says, many churches seem to view their single people, particularly the younger ones, as being in some sort of waiting room, subject to matchmaking, focused prayer, and exhortations to patience. It'll happen one day, we tell them. One wonders what Bestie and Corey would have made of such remarks and strategies. It's striking that where singleness might not have been their preferred choice, they nevertheless took care to fully reconcile and dedicate themselves to it. They owned their lifestyle. It is also striking how full and happy their lives were, not in spite of singleness, but because of it. 
The world and the church need more women and men like the Ten Boom Sisters. If you're married here this morning, what does these verses, verses 32 to 35, have to say to you when it comes to focus? Don't be surprised if marriage and kids can sometimes weigh heavy. Okay? Don't be surprised. Shouldn't catch you off guard. Be intentional about your family priorities and the rhythms that you set in light of eternity. Don't bail on your marriage and family when it gets hard. Take your marital and parental responsibilities and commitments seriously. And as a church, we should recognize, honor, and value the necessary contribution of unmarried people to the life of this church, to all churches. And we should help one another to live out our calling, whether we're married or unmarried, and stay focused on what matters, because it's so easy to become distracted. So easy to become distracted. We need to help one another live out the calling we are currently in and stay focused on what matters. So singleness can be advantageous, but Paul again stresses, finally, we can choose marriage freely, verses 36 to 40. We, remaining single has advantages because this world is fading, because singleness aids my focus, yet we can choose marriage freely. Verse 36 to 38, Paul again addresses the engaged believers, those who are unmarried. And what does he say to engaged people? He says, I commend singleness to you, but you are not under compulsion. If you can't exercise self-control, get married. If you want to get married sooner rather than later, that's fine. It's a good thing. He's saying, don't unnecessarily prolong your engagement, yet consider whether, given your circumstances, remaining unmarried for a season might particularly aid focused service for the Lord or free you and your future spouse from prematurely or unnecessarily carrying marital anxieties. Wisdom is required in whether that's a good thing to do or not. Maybe there's missional opportunities, maybe there's practical job things to be taken into consideration, whatever it might be. What about engaged people? What about verse 38? Do even better. I wonder if that jumped out at you when we read it. Okay, again, there's a, a temptation to kind of skim read this passage and think that Paul's saying singleness is way better than marriage. He's not saying that here. It's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's not that staying single is the right option and, and getting married is wrong. He's not saying that marriage is a lesser choice or calling. Yet the one who remains unmarried does better in the sense that they will be more undivided in their focus. Okay, so we need to read verse 38 in light of the verses that have just come before, the undivided and the divided. He's saying that single people in their devotion will have the opportunity to do more to advance God's kingdom. He's not saying that they are better because of their choice. He's saying practically they will just have more focus on the Lord. They will have more time to do that. So he's addressed the engaged. What about the married? He addresses the married uh, in, in verses 39 to 40, the married along with the widowed. Um, he's addressed the married first. He says again, he re-emphasizes, stay married until death. 
Okay, yes, there's the exceptions, but he's saying stay married until death. The main emphasis of Jesus and Paul's teaching, yes, there's exceptions, but the main emphasis of their teaching on divorce and remarriage is marriage is meant to be lifelong, stay married until death. If you are married, let that be the overriding thing that occupies your thoughts and desires. And verse 39 is also a warning to singles. Hey, if you get married, God designed it to be until death do us part. Get married. It's a good thing, but don't do it lightly. And then he addresses the widowed. Again, we want to acknowledge as a church, I want to acknowledge that even though it hasn't been my experience to date, we want to acknowledge the deep sorrow of being widowed and the ache of missing your former spouse. Don't pretend that that is an easy thing. It is a hard thing. Let's acknowledge that. For those in our church family or those in our lives who are widowed, acknowledge the deep sorrow of being widowed and the ache that comes from missing your former spouse. Don't skip over the commandment to weep with those who weep too quickly. Remember, Paul says, it's okay to mourn. Let me encourage those who are widowed to surround themselves with a church family. Surround yourself with a church family where you can receive companionship, care, and love. As a church, let me remind us all that we are to care for and honor widows and widowers. And Paul here clearly says that if you are a widow, you are free to remarry. You're free to remarry. He gives that freedom that he's been giving to everyone. Here he extends it to widows as well. You are free to remarry. And in some occasions, it may even be a good thing, particularly as we look at what Paul has to say in 1 Timothy 5 about young widows. There's two conditions he puts here on those who would remarry. It's to whoever you wish. Okay, so you don't have to be compelled to marry someone. There's freedom here to choose, but only those who are in the Lord. If you do remarry, and that applies to all marriages, not just those who have, have been widowed. As we thought about last week, you're only to be married in the Lord. You should only be married to another believer. Yet, he says here, give serious consideration to remaining single. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. He's saying, give serious consideration to remaining single. To those who are widowed, seek to serve the Lord in whatever way you can. You still have much growing to do as a Christian and much to give to his people, the church. Use your gifts and serve in whatever capacity your season of life allows you. Let me encourage you towards that. You can be extremely impactful through your prayer, through your godly example, and by how you, having gone through something difficult, can love and comfort others who maybe go through a similar thing. And let me just say how deeply I encouraged I am by how I see that happening amongst our church family those who have experienced the pain and the heartache of being widowed, yet are joyfully embracing the church family and seeking to serve those around them. It's a beautiful, wonderful, honorable thing. 
end of verse 40, Paul again is once again stamping his authority and all that he's been saying. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. What he's doing there is again stamping his apostolic authority on all that he's been saying. He's saying here, everything I've said to you, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how strange it might be, no matter how hard my status might be, no matter how hard these commands might be, you can trust what I say. You can trust what I say. What I'm saying is from God through the inspiration of the Spirit, and therefore it is to be obeyed, and therefore it is good. So loved ones, in a world that's passing away, we must keep marriage in perspective. We do that by remembering that we are, by grace, through faith, united to our bridegroom, Jesus. Finding joy in our union with him is what will enable us to live out whatever marital status we are currently in, to do that joyfully and to do that obediently. So, tomorrow, this afternoon, the weeks and the years to come, Look at your watch more than you look at your ring finger. Long for Jesus' return. Look forward to seeing him face to face and allow that to shape and motivate how we live in this world which is rapidly passing away. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the beauty and the goodness and the joy that comes from being united to Jesus. We thank you for all the benefits that are ours. We thank you for the love and the companionship and the intimacy that we have in relationship to him, something which will only ever increase and never end. Father, I pray for each one of us here in this room, whatever our marital status is, that we would find deep and lasting joy in Jesus and that you would help us in the heartache and the wrestling and the difficulties of our marital status and the joys to be faithful and obedient to you. And help us, Father, to always keep our eyes focused on heaven and longing for Jesus' return. May our hearts long for that wedding day with Jesus when we will eat with him and see him face to face. In his name we pray, amen.